Good morning, church. It's great to see you. By now, hopefully you're in Hebrews, and we're in chapter 11. Uh, for those of you who are guests or maybe check it out North Roanoke online, we generally work our way through books of the Bible, and we've been working through the book of Hebrews, and now we turn the page to chapter 11. At the end of chapter 10, the author of Hebrews calls us to keep the faith. To keep on believing in Christ because it is only those who endure in the faith through trials and adversity and hardship and persecution. It's only those who endure to the end that are saved, those who preserve their souls. So having enduring faith is fundamental. Without faith, there is not salvation. But you can almost hear the the people to whom the author is writing, it is called the book of Hebrews, they were at least familiar with the Old Testament, you can almost hear them saying, well, what about the godly people in the Old Testament? Are you saying that they were saved by faith as well? Weren't they saved by, you know, good deeds or Judaism? And the answer is no, they too were saved by faith in the Son of God. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, people were saved by faith in God's promised Son. One scholar says it this way, Just as by faith we look back to the cross of Christ, so too did the Old Testament saints look forward through the types and shadows of the Old Covenant to the coming Messiah. In the Old Testament and in the New, salvation is by faith in the promised Son of God. And understanding this, helps us know how to read the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible for helping us to know how we should read the Old Testament. We don't go to the Old Testament and read it like a bunch of moral lessons uh, for us to keep in our own power. You know, be like David and not like Saul, or forgive your brothers like Joseph did. Those are good lessons. Don't, Don't misunderstand me. But the problem with that approach to the Old Testament is it misses the major point. And the major point is the the heroes in the Old Testament are really looking to the one hero. And the one hero they're looking to is the living Lord Jesus Christ. And their, their works of righteousness still are motivated by and come through faith in God's Son. And so if we miss the point of the Old Testament, which is to look for the Son of God and His mission and faith in the Son, we can end up misreading and misapplying the entire Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 helps us in that. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us 18 times that these men of old, these people of God from Old Testament times, lived by faith. By faith. 18 times in Hebrews chapter 11. Which is why many Christians call chapter 11 of Hebrews the hall of faith. So, let's begin today. Hear now the word of God. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts and Through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. 
And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Would you pray with me? God, we ask in the few moments ahead that we dive into these verses that you would, by way of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would cause us to see what it is we need to see in this text. God, that you would refresh our hearts where we need to be refreshed. God, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. God, our world today is in many ways demonstrating its brokenness. God, we see it in our news cycle day after day. We see it in attitudes of racism. We see it in, in um, the, the violence that has been unleashed in recent days in our society. And God, when we look at our world, we, we see brokenness. But when we look to the Scriptures, we see that one came and was broken for us so that we could have life and life everlasting. And while, God, this world is not perfect, we know the perfect world is on the way for those who trust in Christ your Son. And so we pray today for those listening online, for those in this room, God, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us. And if there's none, if there's one, rather, who does not know Christ today, if there's one who does not know life that is available in Jesus, that they would turn from their sin and that they too would trust in God and that they would live for Jesus by faith. I ask it for His glory and in Jesus' name, Amen. This morning, we're diving into these first seven verses and we will continue in chapter 11 for the next few weeks but today I want to introduce the chapter to you by just covering these, these first few verses. And the first thing I want you to see is that to live by faith in the Son of God or to live by faith in Jesus, we need to know what faith is. We've got to understand what it is and why it is important. You know, there's a day when Christians won't have to live by faith anymore. Faith will become sight. But this isn't yet that day. Christ has not yet returned. And so... The day when faith and hope give way only to love is not here. And so we've got to keep on moving toward that heavenly city. We've got to keep on moving forward in faith. It's important to know what faith is. Faith is not good vibes. Faith is not an emotional high. It's not well wishes. Faith is not about our ability. It is rather a conviction that God will do what He has promised. Indeed, it's a supernatural conviction. It's the, it's the substance of things not seen. It's while you don't see them, there's something that God is producing within me that gives me the, the proof and the assurance that what He has promised is really on the way. To the eyes of faith, though we don't yet physically see the promises of God, we know they are coming. And this conviction comes not from our determination, not from our ability, but from God Himself who keeps His promises and God who will not be stopped. Now, in our enlightened world, where everything needs to be tested and proven and in a mathematical formula or in a, in a lab somewhere in order for someone to take it as true, many people believe that Christianity is nothing more than a myth, that it's nothing more than a fairy tale. They would tell you, well, you can have that faith if you want to, but don't tell me that I need to have that faith. 
It's just another story among all the stories in the world. But that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith and accurate scientific or mathematical reasoning never conflict. Every view of the world begins with assumptions that we cannot test and we cannot prove with the scientific method. It just so happens, as we'll see in the second point, the Christian faith makes the most sense of the world. And yet, at the end of the day, no matter how logical the Christian faith is, you still must take it by faith. The theologian and molecular biophysicist Alistair McGrath said this, God's existence may not be proved in the hard, rationalist sense of the word, but it can be affirmed with complete sincerity that belief in God is reasonable and makes more sense of what we see in the world, discern in history, and experience in our lives than all of the alternatives. Christianity is the most plausible explanation of the world, and yet we still must embrace it by faith. Church, we didn't see the crucifixion of Jesus. We have not seen the resurrected Lord. We do not yet see ourselves in glorified bodies in a heavenly city worshiping the risen King and Lamb, but by faith we know these things are true and one day we will see them with our eyes. In verse 2, we learn that living by faith is important because it is how the people of old, men of old, the people of God down through the ages gained approval. This word approval means a testimony. Approval is not something that we earn by what we do. It is something that is given by God as a reward of faith. And and when we, we have approval or this witness or this testimony, we see that those who walk by faith have a story to tell. That their life tells a story. When you walk by faith in the Son of God, you too can have a story for the watching world to see. You can have approval and a testimony in the sight of God when you live by faith. So first, we've got to understand what faith is, how it works. Secondly, we must believe that God made the world out of nothing. Did you know that this is not optional? You you cannot have faith in Jesus who saves if you think that God showed up on the scene long after the world was created. He's some sort of myth that's invented to help the world get by. No, the world began because God began it. Before the world existed, God is. In verse 3, we are reminded that the need for faith begins with the beginning. By faith, we understand that the worlds or the universe were prepared by the Word of God. In other words, Hebrews chapter 11 treats Genesis 1-11 through as historical fact. You'll find some so-called Christian theologians out there that want to tell you, well, Genesis uses a lot of poetry in the beginning pages, and so this is sort of just a, a figment of our imagination, a story that's out there that you could take or you could not take, and it's not all that important. But Hebrews chapter 11 doesn't give us that option. Hebrews chapter 11 says not only is it poetry, it's historical fact. And if you don't take Genesis 1 through 11 as historical fact, then you're missing out on the fact that God is creator to whom you owe your life as the overarching authority over all things. And if you miss the boat on that, you've totally missed the boat. The universe exists because the all-powerful God spoke it into existence. 
by His Word. Genesis 1-3, Then God said, let there be light. Read down through Genesis 1. Do you remember how it goes? Then God said, and it was. Then God said, and it was. Then God said, and it was. God spoke the world into existence. This is not just the view of Genesis 1. Psalm 33-6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. Once again, this is not something we can prove scientifically. No one was around to see the creation of the world. It is something that we must understand by faith. The entire understanding of our existence and the world's absolute dependence upon God begins with the fact that He is Creator God. If we deny that God is Creator of all, then we cannot understand our need for God to redeem all. And we cannot understand that He is right to judge those who reject His authority. As Hebrews says, what was seen was not made out of things which are visible. God made the world out of nothing. He didn't take stuff. There wasn't matter laying around that He used to make the world. He just spoke the world into ex existence. This is the first miracle that we are aware of that God has done. God spoke it all into the existence by way of His Word. And we know that His Word is a person. John 1.1 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God made the world by way of His Son. And by faith in His Son, those who are in the world may be rescued and prepared for life in the world to come. Colossians 1.16 and 17, all things have been created by Jesus and for Jesus. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. There are, of course, other theories of how the world began. Many of you, uh, no doubt, went to school or to the university, and you were told that the world began uh, perhaps by a series of random explosions over billions of years that somehow didn't produce chaos, but produced order. Now... That, to me, makes no sense, because if you've ever seen an explosion, in fact, if you've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of explosions, you know how they end. They don't end in order, they end in chaos. And if you add billions and billions and billions of years to those explosions and expect that somehow that's going to produce order, if you ask me, that takes a lot of faith. And I just don't have enough faith, as Frank Turek and... Norman Geisler said, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It makes a whole lot more sense to me that we have a designed universe that functions and has seasons and is predictable. Why? Because a designer designed it. Because God Almighty, a God of order, spoke it into existence. As C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. The last thing we need to see this morning, church, is we must see the people of God are those who live by faith. Now, this point could be extended through much of chapter 11. So you're going to continue to see this in the weeks to come. And we're going to see various aspects of how faith produces obedience and what faith does in the life of God's people. And this morning, we're going to see that, that faith spans from the people of God from the beginning of creation through Noah. Alright? 
In verse 4, the author of Hebrews tells us about Abel. Abel, his sacrifice was better than Cain's sacrifice. You remember the story of Abel and Cain, right? Abel makes a sacrifice, Cain makes a sacrifice, God accepts Abel's but not Cain's. Cain gets mad and he kills Abel. That's the story in Genesis 4 that's being reflected on here. And when Genesis, while Genesis doesn't say anything specifically about faith, the author of Hebrews says the reason that Abel's sacrifice is accepted is because it is offered in faith. He doesn't just come and say, here you go God, here's your offering, I'll do it because you asked for it. He brings the offering in with a right heart attitude. He's humble, he's grateful, and he's dependent upon God. And he recognizes that the promise of Genesis 3.15 needs to come true. That God needs to send a son who's born of woman, who would bruise his heel, and in the bruising of his heel, he would crush the head of Satan. And Abel, by faith, is looking for that son who's going to bring redemption. And it's interesting to me that he brings a lamb. And not just any lamb, but the firstborn lamb of his flocks, and that when Jesus comes, that he would be the chief shepherd, and he would not offer an animal lamb, but he would lay down his life as the firstborn son of God to redeem all who would call upon the name of the Lord. Abel, though he appears for just a few short verses in Genesis, by faith we learn that his life still speaks. God is looking for the heart. He's looking for the attitude of dependence and gratefulness for Jesus Christ, His Son. And if we die in faith, then we too can have a testimony. Though the world may kill us for offering God our very best in faith, we too can have a life that still speaks. Let me ask, what about you? When your life on earth is done, when your life, which the Bible says is a vapor, is over, will your life still speak? When the pastor stands to summarize your life with a eulogy, will he be able to share with the watching world and with your family and with those who don't yet know Christ as their Savior, here is a man, here is a woman whose life still speaks because they lived by faith in a holy God. They dared to do things because they believed that Christ is better than what the world offers. They endeavored to move out in faith, believing that if this world destroys them, tears them down, no matter what, that the world that is on the way is far better because Christ keeps His promises. Do you have a life that when it is over will still speak? In verse 5, we are reminded of Enoch. You remember that story of Enoch, right? That real big prominent story in the Old Testament? Maybe not. It's in Genesis 5. And in Genesis 5, you get this long genealogy. And I know all of you are very faithful in your Bible reading. And when you get to the genealogies, you never, you never do what I did when I was in seminary and I had to read the entire Old Testament in a semester. You never skim those genealogies. You always meditate on every name. And you just take it in. You look up the meaning. I, I know that's what you do. No, it's okay. I know what it's like to skim the genealogies as well from time to time. But in chapter 5, if you skip from Genesis 4 to Genesis 6 to get to the story of the flood, you miss a really important story that happens in about three or four verses in Genesis 5. You get so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he died. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and he died. So-and-so was born, he begat so-and-so, and he died. He died, and he died, and died, 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 died. You get to about verse 17, and you're like, okay, I'm just going to 
Go to chapter 6. And then you miss the story of Enoch. The story of Enoch is amazing. You remember Sesame Street, which of these things is not like the other, which of these things just doesn't belong? That's, that's the interpretive methodology that's being used in Genesis 5. All of these things die except for this one guy named Enoch. It tells us he lived for 65 years and he has a son named Methuselah. And then for the next 300 years of his life, he walked with God. Whoa, that's different. This guy wasn't just born and have a, have a son and die. He, he was born, had a son, and he walked with God for 300 years. And then one day God took him. He didn't even have to die. Hebrews chapter 5, 11, verse 5, mentions that five times. The author of Hebrews wants you to know, he didn't die. This guy walked with God, and he didn't die. How cool is that? So what's the lesson of Genesis 5? You walk with God, you can conquer death. And the author of Hebrews says, this, says it this way. Because he walked with God, and because we know that you can't commune with God and be near to God unless you're righteous, then he had to be one who walked by faith because he was found pleasing to God. And the only way you can be pleasing to God is not by having a righteousness of what you do, but a righteousness that God gives you through faith. And so even though it doesn't specifically say in Genesis 5 that Enoch had faith, the author of Hebrews is interpreting that for us and saying the only way you walk with God is by having faith in the Son of God. He lived by faith. Now what's interesting is if you take these two characters, Abel and Enoch, in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, you have a picture of the reality of the Christian believer today. Yes, like Abel, you're going to offer to God your very best and you're going to do it in faith and eventually you're going to die. You're either going to die because your brothers hate you for it, the world hates you for your faith in Jesus the Son of God, or you're going to die perhaps a natural death. But if you die in faith, then... God isn't going to necessarily take you while you're walking with Him, but He will take you in your physical death to be safe in Jesus so that, like Enoch, when Jesus returns, one day you too will conquer death. Though you die offering yourself to God, you will live if you walk with God by faith. This is the hope of the believer. This is the hope of the Christian. Verse 6 clarifies for us that there are no other ways to please God. That's important, right? Because the world wants to say, well, that's, if that's good for you, that's great. But I've got my own system over here, and that's good for me. So don't bother me about your faith in Jesus stuff. But look at what verse 6 says. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For He comes for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, if God is like a mountain and you want to get to the top of the mountain to be with God, you know how many paths are on that mountain? One path. The path of faith. There's only one way to commune with God and it is by faith in His Son. To draw near to God and to know His presence, verse 6 shows us there. Two things that are necessary. The first one should be pretty obvious. We've got to believe that God exists. But it's not enough to just say that God is. I mean, even the demons believe and tremble. They believe that God is. There must be more to our belief than believing that God is. We must believe that God is good. 
that He is one who keeps His Word, that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. You see, there's a lot of people in the world today who believe that God is, but they don't believe that God is good. They're blaming God for everything under the sun, for their, for their divorce, for, for their child who, who died too young, for the d- disease that someone has in their family, for the world that seems to be falling apart. All the things that they see in the world that are wrong, they believe are God's fault. They've forgotten that it is sin that messed the world up, and God sent His Son to rescue the world. And if you live in His Son, though this world is broken, though this world is is falling apart, there's a world on the way that God is preparing you for if you'll trust in His Son. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and He will keep His promises in Christ. And those who have saving faith don't just believe that God is, they believe that He is good. And then he keeps his word to those who seek him. And then in verse 7, we get the story of Noah. Noah prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, and he did it by faith. How do we know that it's by faith? Because Noah had never seen a worldwide flood. He had never seen the ground open up and water start coming out. He had never seen torrential downpours. He took the warning of God's Word, and he believed it. Things that he had not yet seen, he acted in faith upon. Although he had never seen a worldwide flood, he believed God's warning, and he built a boat. That's how we know he had faith. We also know that he believed that God was right to judge the world because his obedience was offered in reverence. Do you see that in verse 7? In other words, he had a godly fear as he constructed the ark. He wasn't out there like, yeah, look at me. God, talk to me. I'm good. He had a fear. He had a reverence for a holy God, recognizing that that he was no better than anyone else. He didn't deserve to be graciously selected for the building of the ark. He had this godly fear, and he and his family were going to be saved from God's judgment, not because he was a better person than those judged, but because he received the righteousness of God that comes by faith. Do you see that in verse 7? He was an heir, one who inherited the righteousness that's required to be rescued by God, a righteousness that comes by faith. Righteousness was not something he had on his own. He received it. As one scholar writes, Noah exercises faith and is saved from God's watery judgment. Even in the midst of the Old Testament's most horrific display of God's wrath, we see an extraordinarily extraordinary picture of the grace of God. Noah and his family are saved, not because they're more righteous than others, but simply because, Genesis 6-8 says, Noah found favor or grace with the Lord. Noah proved to the watching world that God does make a way of salvation. And God's way of salvation only comes to those who recognize that God is just and that He is right to judge. And in this way, Noah condemned the world. Do you see that in verse 7? That's a very interesting statement. What does it mean that Noah condemned the world? Was he out there preaching condemnation, saying you're, you're all going to die? That's not the point that he's... Making The point he's making is that Noah condemned the world by acting in faith. He condemned the world by believing God in a world that disbelieved God, in a world that didn't believe that judgment would come, in a world that didn't believe that God is holy and righteous and just. There was this man, Noah, who believed God. 
And to me, that's a picture of what the church should be in the world today. We, we don't delight in the fact that people who do not trust in the Son of God will receive the judgment of God. We don't want to go out and be like, hey, y'all are worse than we are. That's not the point that we're making. But by our faith, by our living righteous lives, by our following and trusting in the Son of God, we are to be a community of people that is so different from the world that the world has to recognize they are walking in darkness because there's something going on at North Roanoke Baptist Church that is illuminating, that is the light. Because of the light that flows from the church, the world should see that they live in darkness. It is in this way that those who live by faith condemn the world. God's judgment by way of a worldwide flood isn't going to happen again. We know this because He promised it in a covenant, put a rainbow in the sky. And yet there is another judgment on the way that's going to make the first judgment in the flood look like not very much. In Noah's day, the world was washed by water. In the last judgment, the earth will be refined with fire. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 tells us. Not long after Noah got off the boat, he fell back into sin. In the flood, God tries to start over. He washes the world clean. He washes it clean of sin. And it's just Noah and his family. I was talking with Samuel about this the other day. And he goes, Dad, it's like... It's like they started all over after the flood. We had like a, a new Adam. We had just one guy who was righteous by faith and it was just his family and conditions were perfect. The whole world was there and they could start over and they could be fruitful and multiply and they could be godly people. And no sooner had they gotten off the boat than Noah gets drunk with the crushed fruit of the vine. And once again, we have a fall into sin. Proving that we need more than a boat to be saved. We need a perfectly righteous son. And the good news is, after Noah messed up and his family messed up and generation upon generation upon generation messed up, God kept His promise made in Genesis 3.15 to send a son. He didn't send us another boat. He sent His one and only Son. And when he stretched out his arms on Calvary's cross, it's like an open invitation. If you will deny yourself, if you'll stop living for your glory and your fame and stop worshiping yourself, if you'll turn away from every sin, every thought and attitude and behavior that displeases God, and instead you'll surrender your life to the living Lord Jesus Christ who died in your place and rose again so that you could live forever, then though you be like Abel and you die physically, one day He'll raise you up like Enoch and you'll conquer death forever. The door of the ark of salvation is open. And the name of the ark is the living Lord Jesus Christ. Judgment is on the way. But those who live by faith in the Son of God will be saved. Do you trust Him? Let's pray together. God in heaven, I know we've got people tuning in by way of live stream. I know we have men and women here in this room Hey God, many, many know You. Many believe You. Many trust You. And 
And they need this encouragement from Hebrews to keep trusting in a, in a world that is disappointing. But God, there's also some who are tuning in who don't yet know You and don't yet trust You. I pray, God, that You would give them the, the courage and the liberty to step out, to deny themselves, and to reach out in faith for salvation that comes through the living Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, I pray wherever they are, God, that You would save them today. And God, that You would, you would grant them the courage to reach out to us so that we can nurture them and disciple them on their way to knowing You more and more and trusting You until You come again. God, as we stand in just a moment and sing, I pray that You would remind us that in a world that is sinking sand, You're our solid rock. You are great and You are good. We give You praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen.